Hallelujah. Father, we thank you for the vision that this song is laid out before us, that we gather from your word. We pray that as we open your holy scriptures now, that you would grant us ears to hear. Open the eyes of faith to see the lands that lie beyond the grave. I pray that we would look like saints of old toward the city whose designer and builder is God. I pray that as each step spiritually is placed in front of the other on this life that you have now called us as believers, that with each one you would encourage our souls as we approach the promises that are ours forevermore in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I pray that you would be magnified, lifted up, glorified, proclaimed, and that majesty would be ascribed to you in the proclamation of your word this day. Even as we pray that you've been suitably enthroned upon the praises of your people such that our attention is arrested to your glories. And I pray, Lord, as we are drawn to the beauty, the splendor, the strength, and majesty of our great God through these means, may your church be equipped, encouraged, steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And may the lost be drawn into salvation, repentance of the sin that renders them outside of your grace and, and your graces and favor unless and until they receive the grace of the Lord in the only way that sins can be washed through the blood of Jesus Christ who died in our place. And all of this that you would be glorified and magnified in your church and that your name would continue to circumvent this globe until every tribe, tongue and nation is ransomed for your name's sake as you gather for yourself a representative people from every nation, all the families of the earth, unto the coming of your great kingdom. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. What a privilege we have today to gather as his saints, to enjoy the sweet fellowship that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord, and to open up his holy scriptures together. Would you turn in your Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 11? And also, if you would, keep a thumb in Genesis chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 11, three select passages will be our primary text today. In a moment, we'll stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. The aim of this morning's message is to realize the significance of Abraham's altar in light of the New Testament. Again, it is my prayer that we would realize the significance of Abraham's altar in light of the new covenant. I'm using the concept of altar from the scriptures to picture or to illustrate the utility of the recorded works of the Lord through the history of his progress, his means, his accomplishing salvation. When Abraham had experienced a visitation from the Lord himself, and when the covenant had been sealed between him and his Lord, he did what is fitting in such cases. He built an altar. And in building that altar, he memorialized for his own soul and generations that would succeed him what God had done that utterly changed the course of history. And so now with Isaac in hand, so to speak, if you imagine, he could go back to that place which represented a significant moment of God's promises and divine intervention. And he could show his son the place, the very uh, tangible evidence of God in his holiness, making way to be reconciled with sinful man through his plan of salvation that would unfold through the covenant line. And so as we go back to an altar we recognize these moments in Scripture are memorialized and we can draw encouragement as well. 
The author of Hebrews teaches us to do this by pointing back to many who have preceded us, including and perhaps chiefly among them, Abraham himself. Abraham in Hebrews, or Abraham's altar in Hebrews, is therefore the theme and title of our message. Would you stand with me today out of reverence for God's word and listen as his scripture is proclaimed in your hearing today. I will read three passages from Hebrews 11 on into the beginning of 12. Hebrews 11, 8 through 10, 13 through 16, and 39 through 12, 2. Here we have the holy word of the Lord. By faith, Hebrews eleven eight, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Let's pick up in verse 39 through 12 too. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> Now, this is an excursus in our Genesis series. At Genesis 12, we have noted a milestone in the history of redemption. Suddenly, the historical record in the scripture has taken a turn, if you will, for the better. So far, all of world history has been encompassed, has been subsumed under the general narrative, the history of mankind himself. But then after Babel, you remember the languages are confused and the nations are dispersed. And there is one man who is called out from among them. What is his name, kids? Who is the one man that God calls out after the Tower of Babel is built to be a hope and a light for the nations? Who is that man? Young people? Zion, Zion close, not exactly. I'm looking for the name of a great forefather of the faith. Noah. Not exactly Noah. Remember, this is after Babel. One more try. Starts with an A. Adam, close. Well, Abraham, spoiler alert, Abraham was called forth from the nations to represent hope for all God's people. And from Genesis 12 on, all of the scriptures virtually focus upon the history, the lineage, the unfolding events, the fulfillment of the covenant that God made 
to Abraham, that promise held out hope that one day he would be a light, that he would be a blessing to all the nations. So Genesis 12 is extremely pivotal. Thus it stands to reason that other authors in Scripture would recognize as much. And because this is such a momentous moment in the history of the Scriptures, we've paused twice, this is the second now, to note how other authors of Scripture highlight the significance of what happened in Genesis 12. The first was a message some weeks ago from Isaiah. We noted from Isaiah how authors of Scripture have recognized and expounded the milestone moment of the calling of Abraham first recorded in Genesis 12. In Isaiah 50 and 51, the prophet visits the altar of Abraham, as it were, noting the signal or important implications of the patriarch, that means forefather, his legacy, recalling or uh, relating to the arc of redemptive history. So that what are the implications of Abraham's legacy as they relate to the large arc of redemptive history? This is what the prophet was expounding in Isaiah 50 and 51. He calls the lineage of Abraham now, in his day, hundreds of years removed from that moment, to look to the rock. This is the imagery he used. He says, look to the rock from which you were hewn and the quarry from which you were dug. In other words, there's a source and an origin to your identity spiritually. And then he goes on and says, look to Abraham, look to Sarah. What God had promised and accomplished through them yet holds out hope for you today. This was his message, drawing the attention of a wayward people to the promises of God and his plan of salvation across time. In doing so, he begs them to remember that there is no self-help salvation efforts that will ever be effective to save man. He begs them, do not walk in the light of your own torches. Look to the light of God's word alone. He tells them that salvation is through sovereign birth. Okay, young people, another pop quiz. Maybe I trust you'll do better this time. (laughs) Sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Can you tell me, just by way of review, the legacy of each? We've used a phrase to describe each one. So we have Japheth and the coastlands. So the legacy of Japheth was that they dwelt in the coastlands. Okay, Ham. It's Ham and the city builders. Babel is representative of the legacy of Ham. Ham stood for the children's legacy of Ham stood for city building. And then the third one was Shem. This is the most important figures into our message today. It's Shem and the, ooh, most important one. Anyone remember? Significant, significant sons. Shem and the significant sons. The record of the genealogies of scripture follow the progress of the significant sons through history. And as Isaiah points to this progress through the elect or covenant or messianic line, he is pointing out that salvation is through sovereign birth. The sovereign birth of significant sons to each uh, received some when you think of Abraham and then David and so forth, greater measure of revelation of the meaning of God's salvation up to the most significant son of all who was, who was he? Son of Shem, son of Abraham, son of David. Who who was he? The most significant son of all? Son of David? Jesus Christ. That's right. Salvation is through sovereign birth. But not only this, salvation is through sovereign rebirth as regeneration occurs in the hearts of all true believers 
All who are truly born again can count themselves in the lineage of Abraham. The book of Hebrews goes on to say, we are joint heirs with Abraham and joint heirs with Christ on account of salvation through sovereign rebirth. Uh, Furthermore, Isaiah recognizes that fruitfulness is realized. That is the cultural Great Commission mandate that Adam first received, that is cultural mandate he first received is fulfilled as the Great Commission goes forth to gather in the coastland regions which become representative of the Gentiles until the fullness of the kingdom happens as God ransoms for himself a people through the triumph of the gospel all over the world. And through this, Isaiah prophesies an empire is established through the covenant that Yahweh has established with, through his significant son, Jesus Christ. So that's a summary of our last message. Now we move from that Old Testament example to a New Testament testimony of the importance of Genesis 12. Today, we cite an example from Hebrews 11. The author of Hebrews prominently features these same moments that Isaiah did in Abraham's life and destiny alongside other examples of faithful saints through covenant history. Here is more of the individual element in focus as our author, the author of Hebrews, draws our attention to the role of faith in the life of a believer, who among others is a notable forerunner of those who will follow Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. So again, we go back to the altar of Abraham to learn something following the instruction, following following the uh, teaching of the author of Hebrews of what it means to live the life of faith. So Abraham is this notable forerunner among others, and through the instruction detailed in the letter to the Hebrews, we learn of every true believer, every true Christian's connection and relationship to Abraham himself, that significant son of old. The long line of significant sons culminating in the advent, the incarnation, the birth, the arrival of Jesus Christ is an altar worth revisiting for us yet today. As we are heirs in a long line of forebears whose legacy at these altar moments is marked by many things and just an overview list, prophecy, sacrifice, worship, priestly mediation, thanksgiving, atonement, offerings, special revelation, memorial, and proclamation. Altar moments of God's covenant intervention, His revealing His plan to man are marked by all these things Thus, Hebrews features Abraham as an exemplary saint. And now let's get into our text today under three headings. uh, Abraham is an example of a saint who did three things. He lived by faith, he died in faith, and he was commended through faith. That's our main structure and outline today. Hebrews features Abraham as an exemplary saint in 11, 8 through 10, living by faith. A saint dying in faith, 11, 13 through 16, and a saint commended through faith, 11.39 through 12.2. So this is some of the, or these are some of the main ideas in Hebrews 11 that the altar, if you will, of Abraham stands for. First of all, living by faith. Again, Hebrews 11.8, we have this language. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So uh, turn over to Genesis 12 for a moment, if you have your thumb there. And in the introduction, we, we were making the case 
that Hebrews 11 is recalling this moment in Genesis 12. So let's review Genesis 12.1. Now the Lord said to Abram, before his name was changed, of course, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Verse 4. So Abram went out as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Note verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. It says from there he journeyed. He moved to the hill country. On the east of Bethel, pitched his tent with Bethel on the west, Ai on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord, and Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So this Genesis 12 moment is highlighted in Hebrews 11.8. This action, this narrative, this account that we've just read was one that was accompanied by faith. It was proof of something different, something in the constitution of Abraham's soul and consciousness that had been changed as God as he answered the call of the Lord, such that by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive it as as an inheritance, and even though he didn't know at that time exactly where he was going The concept of faith itself is introduced at the beginning of this chapter. What is faith? Our author says, verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So key words in the ESV translation, assurance and conviction. Faith is marked by these adjectives, assurance, an absolute certainty, a knowledge that God's word is true. Conviction, this truth is binding. There is a moral imperative attached to it. That is to say, faith is a perspective-shaping reality, reconstructing life and thought in the consciousness and conduct of the believer. Let me read that again. Faith is a perspective-shaping reality. It reconstructs the life and thought in the consciousness and conduct of the believer. And this was the testimony of Abraham. His actions changed and his mentality changed as a result of the promise that God gave him. God's word came to Abraham. God appeared to his son, Abraham, revealed himself. And at that point, that certainty and conviction that this was truth and this was the direction that God had called him worked its way out and faith, the faith of Abraham, took the first step on the long journey to a place he wasn't sure where it was but would end with God's promised land and his dwelling there. Abraham is featured in this text as a saint who had a supernatural calling. The scripture describes 
your own salvation as beginning with the calling of the Lord. The Lord called forth to you, and I'm not sure what means he used, but if it was anything like mine, he used perhaps a godly family, the testimony of your parents or a grandparent that maybe shared the gospel. Perhaps he called you, perhaps he revealed his word by a coworker that handed you a track. Perhaps you received a Bible in your hand that had been tucked away in a corner by some weary evangelist leaving it in this place or another. You opened it and you heard a voice in your spiritual ears that you had never heard before. And it sounded like this, repent of your sin, turn from your God-hating wickedness, turn from your sovereign God ignoring depravity, repent and believe and trust that Jesus Christ can wash you of your sins. Abraham took the first step on a journey that was predestined by God, and he went following the call of the Lord. And this was according to God's plan, a plan that if God had told him every last detail, he still would not have been able to comprehend it. A plan that incorporated his lineage further than Abraham could even count. Spiritually speaking, as many as the what kids, the stars in the... And Abraham's kids were as many as the stars in the... And as many as the grains of... Grains of sand on the beach, that is correct. And so this supernatural calling came to Abraham in Genesis 12. Also, this calling involved an undisclosed destination. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed, called to go out to a place he was to receive, but he was without knowing where he was going. God called him toward a trajectory and a direction, but he didn't have a map other than the one that God would show him on the way. And he didn't have a picture of what that place would be when he got there until the Lord revealed as much. And when the Lord did, Abraham set up an altar in Genesis 12. He had traveled from uh, Haran to the promised land. And at that point at Sechem and so forth, when God revealed to him, this here is the land that I have promised you. Abraham overflowing with worship, thankfulness, offering to the Lord the praises he deserves, erected an altar to commemorate that moment. The spiritual calling was marked not just by predestination and a destination to be disclosed along the way, but also it was described as a spiritual inheritance. He was to receive an inheritance, a blessing that would come by way of transfer from the one who was in charge of this wealth and this estate to the one who was bound to that individual in relationship. Now, this idea, relationship and inheritance, is is greatly expanded through Scripture, such that we have the language, the in-Christ language. And when we are adopted sons and daughters of our Lord Jesus Christ, that which His death transferred to us by way of spiritual inheritance, this was prophesied in more shadowy form to Abraham, but becomes clear along the way, along the way of God's journey through history. And then Abraham was moved in the spiritual calling by the Word of God. He was motivated by sovereign revelation. The Lord revealed to him by his word, go, and he went. Just as the Lord calls us through his word this morning, repent and believe, or walk in a manner worthy of the call. We are moved by the authority of God's word if we are of the lineage of Abraham. God had appeared to Abraham in the flesh. He had revealed his word to him in this seed form, and Abraham therefore heard and obeyed. 
And so God has revealed His Word to us in His Holy Scriptures, and He begs us to repent and to follow our King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When God appeared to Abraham in the flesh, it anticipated a moment of another in-flesh appearing. God would appear in flesh to all the world in the coming of Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh and dwelling among us. And he would issue that call right from Matthew chapter 4 to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Thus we learn from Abraham and we see unfolding through his journey, even through his lineage, that living by faith involves a supernatural calling. Furthermore, it involves a foreign identity. That is an identity that is strange to the world around us. Verse 9, Hebrews 11 By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. This foreign identity involves a displacement from the place he once called home. Um, I've been thinking a lot about courses my grandpa taught me growing up. I used one as a passage of scripture at his graveside service yesterday. Well, another one occurs to me, something like, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through, um, and that's about all I remember. And there's another one, from the door of an orphanage to the house of the king, I'm no longer an outcast, a new song I sing from rags to riches, the weak to the strong, I'm not worthy to be here, but praise God, I belong, I'm so glad that I'm a part of the family of God, and there's journey language in there as well. These choruses are inspired by the scriptural identity of a new family bond and a new place of dwelling that God has prepared for those that love Him. And this reconstruction of identity in the heart of the believer is such that now we are strangers and aliens to worldliness. The way that the world looks for hope organizes itself and holds out promises for the future and gives us these tantalizing, you know, Uh, temptations of wealth and success and notoriety and significance and influence and power, those things become strangely dim, as another song says, in the light of His glory and grace. Why? Because we have an identity that is reconstructed if we are living by faith as Abraham did. Suddenly, we are not home in a fallen world until that fallen world is utterly and completely redeemed, and then it is home. Young people, again, what do we call the world yet future that will be totally, completely redeemed? It's not the earth as we know it, but it is the new. Anyone know? When the world is redeemed, what does the Bible call it? They call it the new heavens and... Yes, the new heavens and the new earth. We are living by a promise that the new heavens and new earth is our ultimate place where we will find affinity, community, communion, and we will be able, and national identity, and be able to be citizens of the kingdom of God. And until the arrival of that, don't be surprised if you're walking by faith that you feel at least a little out of place. Now, Abraham was not consoled by conventional assurances. He had to dwell in tents. A man who was once a city dweller, according to the lineage of Ham, repented, left Ur, left Haran, for the temporary lodging of tents. Abraham, though promised the land, though promised the kingdom, though promised the lineage to be a blessing to the nations and a great inheritance, never once, so far as we know, dwelt in a permanent structure again, but lived out his years in a temporary structure, a tent. 
Paul compares this existence to our own bodies. He describes living in this body as living in a tent that's growing threadbare and wearing out over time. But he also says that this slight momentary affliction of living under temporary conditions just now is preparing those who walk by faith for an eternal weight of glory. And what is that? It's, pre- it's a place prepared by the hand of God. In the words of the author of Hebrews, a place, a city whose designer and builder is God. Which is better? The cheap, frayed, tense, that which is subject to decay and depravity, this side of glory, or a mansion constructed by the chief architect, architect Jesus Christ, in heaven one day, in the new heavens and new earth? The answer is obvious. And so walking by faith is living in confidence and conviction. Assurance, certainty, and that binding truth, and that steady uh, knowledge of God's way, clinging to God's word, even though we are in an in and in-between phase right now. So this is the legacy of the father of the faith. He remained an alien and a stranger, and to some degree in this land yet unredeemed. He was living by the promises of God in a place yet to come. He did so dwelling in tents, which were merely temporary lodging. And yet, in spite of all this, he became the father of the faith. He didn't just dwell in tents, but he dwelt with Isaac and Jacob. That's reference to son and grandson, which was a fulfillment of God's sovereign promise and a miraculous birth. Isaac in his old age, who indeed had a son, Jacob, and so forth. Jacob and his 12 sons go on to be described as the nation of Israel. And that number only expands to one day incorporate spiritually all the sons of Abraham all the children of God who are in Christ. A supernatural calling, a foreign identity, and a future orientation. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. As we have noticed, this is a contrast to Babel. Uh, Back in our Genesis 12 text, the story of Babel is situated between, or uh, right next to, juxtaposed right next to the story of Abraham's calling, in between as a lineage And I believe it's on purpose, it's intentional to illustrate a uh, contrast. On the one hand, you have hope represented in the city of man. Ham and the city builders build places like Babel, which hold out hope to make for ourselves a name and secure for us a future. And on the other hand, Abraham doesn't build a city. He dwells in tents, he builds an altar. And he looks forward in faith, he walks by faith toward a city whose designer and builder is God. Not the central planning of our best humanist efforts, not the collective will of the democracy, not the hope that the United Nations today or some council of foreign relations or some globalist vision of utopia, not any of that. All of that is a Babel-building impulse, but instead looking forward to the place whose designer and builder is God. So there we have this summary of living by faith involving a supernatural calling, a foreign identity, a future orientation. Second major point, Hebrews features Abraham as an exemplary saint dying in faith. In Hebrews 11, the account of Abraham and Sarah is interrupted by this instruction in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Again, there's reference to that foreign identity, but also this is in the context of the completeness of their earthly life. They not only walked by faith, they not only lived by faith, they also died in faith. For it says, verse 14, people who seek thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, 
they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Overlapping themes, yet extending the application to the fullness of life. Um, I referenced already one time that we had a funeral yesterday for my grandfather, and these themes definitely came to mind. My grandfather was a good example of one that I have known who died in faith. You know, in his last words that I heard him say, I, first I prayed for him and so forth, but he insisted before I go that he pray for me. So the last words that I heard my grandfather utter were a prayer over his grandson, who has a lot of great grandkids, that I would walk in the faith. The faith that he was dying in, he prayed that his grandson would live by. Now this is a testimony of the work of God in the heart of a true believer. If God has worked such, a, such an assurance and a conviction in your own heart that your knowledge of God's word and its promises and the hope that is held out in the cross of Jesus Christ is unfazed even by death itself, the most formidable enemy. You know, Hebrews itself says that all men, aside from a transformation of their heart and soul, live in, in fear of death. If you have been delivered from that fear of death by the power of the inworking spirit, trusting that Jesus has risen from the dead and will raise you again bodily with him one day, then you are a saint who not only will live by faith, but you will have grace by that conviction, by that confession, to die in faith. Now, the death of the saints required faith, in part because the promises, the fullness of them at least, were still distant. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Let me ask you by way of application, if you've ever interacted with someone, or maybe you have felt this way yourself, a deep sense of despair because you feel like the trial that you are going through or the depths of the valley that you are called to walk through or the anguish and the suffering that, and the affliction that someone is enduring is just not fair. And you feel like it lies outside the expectations of which you felt you were promised when you signed on to this thing called Christianity and following Christ. If you are tempted to feel that way, if you know someone who is, I encourage you to read your scriptures more closely. Don't cherry pick your favorite passages, but dig deep into passages such as we have before us today. And this is what you will find. You will find that the faith that carried the saints of old through gave them the ability to, yes, quench the power of fire, escape the edge of the sword, be made strong out of weakness, become mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, receive dead back to life by resurrection, and a second list. And these are the things we often do not emphasize, yet are so important, especially when we come upon the deepest trials and challenges of life. In 1135, some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Tortured, refusing to accept release, presumably it was recant and you can be free. Just say that Caesar is Lord and you don't have to suffer for your faith anymore. And these, the saints of old who are dying in faith, refused to accept release, refused to recant their faith. Why? Because they had faith that they would rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking, flogging, chains, imprisonment. They had stoning, being sawn in two, were killed by the sword. They went about in skins of sheep, goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, and so forth. 
The mark of faith is not just enjoying the rewards, and they are overflowing, especially in the next life, too much. They're too uh, many and too manifold for us to even imagine, not just enjoying the rewards and consolations of our salvation that do comfort us, but they are also enduring the afflictions that God has ordained to deepen our faith, to testify to his glory, and to suffer, join in the afflictions of Christ himself on that journey. Hebrews features Abraham as an exemplary saint who lived by faith and died in faith. Speaking thus. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If you have all your investment in this life, if all your energy and your passions and your desires and your motives are focused on what you can get by way of return on this life's investments, what are you speaking to? You're speaking thus. This life holds out the best hope that I can imagine for my future. Now, if you are laying down your life for Christ, for rewards that you will not see until the next life, if you are, let me give you just a brief example. This one kind of touched my heart and hits close to home. It has to do with the history of Christian rock and roll. Sounds a little strange. Anyway, I was listening to a, a band member from a band called Disciple. And this kid, well, he's my age now, but when he was young, he was inspired by guys who were singing for the name of Jesus in these unconventional ways, right? One day, their band, after starting to get some notoriety, even the NFL, WWF, had picked up a couple of their kind of power ballad songs. They're still confessing Christ. They're still saying the name of Jesus from the stage. They're still reading from the scriptures at each show. One day, they got shopped by a major record label. And if anyone is in the music industry, you know, this is a big deal. They got, and, they, and so they had this meeting in their tour bus before this important show began because a scout was coming from, I think, Capitol Records. And he was told by his agent, listen, this guy is a secular Jew, so we won't be saying the name of Jesus and we won't be reading from scripture during this show. I mean, this really touched my heart. He said, I don't hold fault against anyone, but I was alone in my convictions in that moment. And you got to remember, I was back to my 14-year-old days where I saw evidence of courage and guys who were willing to confess the name of Christ in an unconventional setting. So he said, yep, I confessed the name of Jesus. I read from Scripture, and we didn't get the contract. You know, and as I thought about that, it brought a tear to my eye. And it might seem like an example that you can't relate to, but in principle, I guarantee you can. Sometime in the course of your life, there will be a testing moment where just like in the temptation of Christ, you will be led up to a high place and you'll get a glimpse of the promises that this life has to offer. And just one little price, you have to deny, compromise, you have to be ashamed of Christ in some way. And then the world can be your oyster and be opened up to you. Those who are willing to live by faith and die by faith will have the discernment to recognize that test when it comes and by His grace alone to stand and in that testimony, hopefully, in laying down their life, sacrificing something by way of promise on this side of glory, for the promise of the next life, they are the ones who will walk in that lineage, lineage and legacy of Abraham. They are the ones most likely who have had their minds saturated and renewed by reading the scriptures so that when that testing comes, they are prepared. And by speaking thus, that is, denying that record contract because you care more about Christ than you do worldly success, for instance. By speaking thus, you make it clear that you are seeking a homeland. More riches, more promises, more success, more amazing you know, reward than anything this world can boast. And those promises remain yet distant right up to death. But once you cross that threshold in Christ, they are all yours. Because He died to transfer them to your account and the life of faith recognizes, it sees beyond the threshold of death unto 
the blessings of glory. Dying in faith, you know, life like this is a life that God will not be ashamed of. I read over that and you might have not caught kind of the unique construction here. Let me put it this way. Many of us are familiar with the idea of being ashamed for the gospel. You know, let's not be ashamed for Christ. And we, and rightly, you know, from the book of Romans, we recognize that those who are faithful to the Lord are not ashamed of Him. But I wonder how many of us consider whether or not our life is such that God could be proud of us. Or are we living in such a way that God would be ashamed to call us His own? That's a a thought we should tremble before, is it not? Verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. If you care very little, if you demonstrate by your affections, your desires, your pursuits, your ambitions, your goals, your uh, projects in life, that you only care about a city here. And God has gone to all this effort, so to speak, to prepare for you one beyond. You don't recognize and your faith has not acknowledged the reality of the greater joy to come. And that separates you from the Lord. Repent if you find yourself slipping into that temptation, into that sinful uh, frame of mind, a worldview limited to the promises of this life. Live unashamed for Christ and take refuge in the fact that as you walk and die by faith, He is through Christ and His death on the cross to satisfy the atonement of your sins also unashamed of you. Thirdly and finally this morning, Hebrews features Abraham as an exemplary saint commended through faith. Verse 39, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What is commendation? Commendation can be associated, perhaps even synonymous with justification. It's the declaration of righteousness corresponding with the evident faith of a regenerate, born-again saint. It is the work and the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to you as you receive the gospel. And in that act, that transfer, that great exchange, as it is sometimes called, where Christ takes on your sin and grants to you His holy righteousness, God looks upon that, and it's attended by faith, He looks upon that exchange and declares you righteous, commended before Him. This is the idea. Now those who were commended through their faith, like Abraham and the others listed in Hebrews 11, they did not receive what was promised. There was a waiting time. There was a distant future for which they died in faith, looking forward uh, to something. And what was it? Why was this the case? It says, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. The faith of Abraham, so to speak, was waiting for the fullness of time. He was waiting to join the heirs of the incarnation. 
That is to say, those who realize the gospel in its fullness in Christ, Abraham is waiting for them to come in and receiving the glorious hope of the gospel consummated. The scriptures speak of the fullness of time and it's this idea of completion where every term and condition, every prophecy is satisfied until that threshold moment of critical mass where what he has planned takes place in its fullness. And we are somewhere on that trajectory. And what we are farther along by God's grace than Abraham was. In some sense, we could say we can draw even greater encouragement from his faith before as we ourselves look forward to promises that are yet outstanding. Why have they not been received in full right now? Why did Abraham not enjoy the promises in full in this life? Because God had purposes, something better for us, for all his saints, that apart from the fullness of the elect coming in, apart from every last seat filled at the marriage supper of the Lamb, they would wait to dig in to that glorious celebration, so to speak. And this is the way that salvation is spoken of across the long arc of history This something better is abundant life through Jesus Christ and his redemptive work. There's this construction in the text, since we let us. It's like, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that is to say, since we have been preceded by the examples like Abraham gone before, let our perspective be changed. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And again, he uses this construction it says, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So as we visit Abraham's altar, even today, we can do those two things, can we not? We can look to his example and say, since we have this example that has gone before us, let us repent of our sins. Let us lay aside the old man. Let us embrace a life that is, pattern, that is marked by a pattern of repentance. And furthermore, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I suspect when we are young, the greatest temptations are the passions of youth and things like I mentioned before, the pull and draw of success. But I suspect, generally speaking, when we are old, the greatest temptation is just to grow weary and well-doing. And that fire, that hope, and that expectation of a world that yet lies beyond, it's hard to summon the energy hope for it. So whether you are young or whether you are old and susceptible, you know, generally speaking to either temptation, may I exhort you and encourage you this day, make good use of the means. The saints who've gone before and in a moment will see even greater means of the founder and perfecter of our faith who has gone before us so that you repent of weariness, tiredness, complacency, Repent of distractions and tantalizing addictions and things that glitter and advertise fulfillment outside of Christ. Repent of these and place your faith in the one who has promised a glorious world to come. Since we are surrounded by this, these examples, let us do these things. Finally, the author of Hebrews, in the closing words of our passage we selected today, encourages us draws our attention to look to Jesus. Verse 2 of chapter 12, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The life of Abraham had a certain shape to it. There was joy set before him, the promise of a promised land, 
the hope for a great nation. And he, Abraham, for the joy, promised land, great nation set before him, endured the passage through the wilderness, living in temporary structures like tents. This was a pattern of, that, uh, of the significant son, was it not? There's a type of Christ, if you will, was a symbol of one to come. But that pattern was fulfilled in substance and in power in Jesus Christ, who is identified in Matthew's gospel as the son of Abraham. And in his case, the joy set before him, the rewards of his suffering, the fact that you and I, if you were a believer in this room, would come into his kingdom, be a citizen of glory by repenting of your sin and placing faith in his sacrifice, that joy set before him is what motivated him to endure the cross and despise the shame, that is, resist the temptation to not pay the price of God's journey and calling for the Son of Man unto this glorious hope. He did so, and through his work we are free. And what was the reward of his sufferings? Not only the fullness of the elect coming in, as I've mentioned, but also this elevated position. He who once was made low, took on flesh, and laid aside or veiled that which was his pre-incarnate glorious prerogative. He who humbled himself, took on the form of a man, Philippians 2, and was incarnate in the womb as a helpless baby in the body of a virgin. He is now ascended and glorified. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, or as the beginning of the book tells us, the right hand of the majesty on high. Saint, if you look to Jesus in this room, you will one day be raised up to rule and reign with him at his right hand. That is part of our promise. So look to him, would you? Look to the gospel that is evident in the work of Jesus Christ. Listen to the message and love its promises. Be saturated in your mind and in uh, your affections with its implications. And in so doing, you will have grace to live by faith, to die by faith, and one day stand before the throne of God and be commended through your faith as one who is justified, having trusted in Christ, the significant son of significant sons who endure the cross on your behalf. Let us close in prayer. Lord, we are thankful for what you have accomplished in the history of your plan of redemption for man. We among all saints are most privileged right now because we can see, Lord, with the benefit of spirit-inspired hindsight through your holy word, the mountains that you have leveled and the valleys that you have raised up to make straight the way of the Messiah through the course of the lineage of Abraham all the way through to Jesus Christ, son of Abraham, son of David, born in flesh, all the way through to his work on Calvary, all the way through to the grave unto his resurrection, all the way through his ascension, his ascending not just to some nebulous place, but to a place of authority seated at the right hand the maker, creator, sustainer, and planner of all the universe, and now ever ruling, reigning, subjecting his enemies under his feet. We thank you, Lord, for the benefit of your scripture that grants us by the Spirit's use the eyes to see these things. Enlighten us with them, we pray, and may they encourage us in our own walk that we might live by faith until the day you call us home. And if there are any who fellowship among us or outside, I should say, of the fellowship of the saints because their sins are not atoned for. I pray that this word would hit their ears with such conviction that they would cry out to the only means of salvation, repenting of their sin and turning to Christ, looking to Him who has made sin for them, that they might receive His grace 
as their sin is punished on his bruised and bloody back on Calvary. Thank you, Lord, for these promises. Again, may we live in light of them unto the praise of your great name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.